0: Well, good morning, church family, and again, welcome to McLean Presbyterian Church. Uh, My name is Joe Palakis. I've had the pleasure of serving as one of the pastoral interns here on staff for the past few years, and I am very excited and grateful to be able to stay on here as our next pastor of young adults. Uh, So y'all are stuck with me for at least a little longer, Um, but it's good to be here I want to start by remembering a movie, actually, that I watched a few years ago um, that, quite surprisingly, changed my life. It was a movie, a documentary, really, called Free Solo, and Free Solo tells the story of a young man named Alex Honnold, and this, this young man, Alex, is impassioned by, our, by a particular type of rock climbing called free soloing. And what this is, is Alex approaches rock faces out in the wild and just begins climbing them with no rope, no harness, nothing to anchor him in. And Free Solo tells the story of his endeavor, his effort to Free Solo to freely climb El Capitan, which is a rock face in Yosemite. And the route that he takes is about 3,000 feet high into the air. So this documentary, as it follows his journey, exposes that Alex is really a nihilist through and through. He doesn't believe that there's anything after death. In fact, at one point in the documentary, the crew asks him, Alex, what happens if you fall? Aren't you frightened? And he says, what's to be scared of? I fall, maybe there's a half second of pain, and then, boof, it's gone. No big deal. He has truly nothing that is frightening him. But Alex is captivated, right, by this task of summoning El Capitan. It becomes his, his north star. It's his meaning for life. It's what gets him up in the morning. It's what controls his diet, his exercise, his daily routines, even his relationships. They're all focused on this one singular goal. And I wonder... For us, if I can pose it this way, what is our El Capitan? What is our reason for getting up in the morning? What is the thing that controls our days, that gives us a reason to get up and out of bed and actually makes a difference for how we live? We're coming to the last verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which we've been going through for these past few weeks. And this verse points us in the direction of the biblical answer to that question: of what should be our North Star, of what should be driving us. So let's read this verse together, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Then we'll pray and then we'll interact with this text together. So 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable always abounding in your work for the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are God and we are not. And this simple, almost painfully obvious truth reminds us this morning of our need for you. Lord, if it were up to us, we would have no hope, no life. And yet you freely give us not only life, but hope through the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. So this morning, enable us to see clearly. Meet with us through your word, and let all of this be for your glory and not our own. Amen. Amen. So just one verse this morning, but there's a lot actually to unpack in this verse, and we're going to kind of structure our time this morning by looking at two main headings, right? First, our resurrection foundation for our life in Christ, and second, our resurrection charge for our life in Christ. So our resurrection foundation and our resurrection charge. So let's start, right, with our resurrection foundation. What is the foundation for really everything that we do here on a Sunday morning? Our verse begins to point us in the right direction with the very first word, therefore. Now, when I was in high school, I had a Sunday school teacher who gave me a pithy little saying that I remember to this day, and I've heard that Pastor Butch Hardman also used to say this repeatedly, right? Whenever you see a therefore in scripture, you've got to ask, what is the therefore, therefore, right? It's not trademarked. I didn't come up with that. Use that on your own time. Uh, but what is the therefore, therefore, right? What is it doing there? And it's helpful because it reminds us that the word therefore is always a bridge of sort. It's a connectors, a connector that tells us that what comes before that word matters intrinsically to what comes after, right? So what comes before this word, therefore, is, is 57 verses, 57 verses of history and theology in which Paul is making a case that this singular event, the resurrection of Jesus, matters a lot, With this one word, therefore, he's essentially saying, my entire argument in this chapter has been leading up to this one moment, so pay attention. And like I just said, right, this this chapter 15, which we've been looking at together for the past few weeks, tells us both a history and a theology, right? Historically, chapter 15 sets out the case that a man named Jesus really did come He really did die for my sins and for yours. And remarkably, he really did rise from the dead. Just ask any one of the 500 witnesses who actually met with the risen Jesus after he walked out of the tomb. Right? Paul makes this incredible claim historically that Jesus really did rise from the dead but then he goes on, right, to make a theological case, saying that this isn't just a, an event that happened in history that's relegated to, to a once-off. He says this resurrection of Jesus is actually a foretaste, right? It's a preview of what is to come for everybody, for all of creation, He says that in the resurrection of Christ, death itself has been swallowed in victory. And now all who are in Jesus can look forward to the day when they too will rise in restored, renewed, beautiful bodies to be with him forever. And we've been trying to get our heads and our minds and our hearts around this central theological truth, right? Trying to stir up within us this, this hope. For for that day, that one day, someday, when Jesus returns, we will all rise to meet him. But with this word, therefore, Paul tells us that this idea of history and theology, it doesn't actually stop there. Therefore tells us that this historical and theological case that Paul has laid has everything to do with how we now live right now right here. Because, and this is important for Paul and for all of Scripture, theology is never just something to store away in our minds, but it's something that's supposed to spill out into our lives. Our theology deeply matters for how we live. And that's what this one little word, this word therefore is telling us. That what we have looked at for these past several weeks has a direct impact on what it means to live for Jesus now. Which brings us exactly into our second point, which is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning on this resurrection charge. If the foundation for our life is Jesus' life, specifically his resurrected life, what bearing does that have? What does that matter now for how we live? So a lot of y'all know that we are in the middle of graduation season, right? I just graduated last week from seminary, and I know lots of our high school seniors are excited and getting ready to graduate from high school in the coming weeks. And if you've ever been to a graduation ceremony, a commencement ceremony, you know that it often ends with a charge, Right, a charge from the principal or the president of whatever school you're graduating from. And this charge essentially is the, the principal's effort to take everything that the students learned and then send them out with that and say, now go live as if all of this is true. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here, but he's actually doing more than just a sort of commencement speech, right? He's giving us a resurrection charge for all of life. So let's look at this second part of the verse, right? Look back at verse 58 with me if you have it open in your, in your Bibles. Therefore, my beloved brothers, my beloved brothers and sisters, and already just third word in, we have to take another pause and reflect on this reality of the word Beloved. The way that Paul connects the history and theology of chapter 15 with now his resurrection charge is by introducing a resurrection status for all of us, a status that tells you if you are in Christ, you are beloved. Right, the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus declares us, makes us beloved sons and daughters of God, beloved brothers and sisters of one another. This one little word, again, tells us that you sitting here this morning are not just a cog in some church machine, right? You're not an expendable soldier in God's army. You are a beloved Daughter, a beloved son to the creator of the universe. And we can't move too quickly past this, right? Because I wonder, or what comes up to me whenever I think of this word, right, is where do I go to find this status? Where do I go to hear this word, beloved, spoken over me? Do I go to my friends? to my parents, maybe oddly enough to, to my coworkers, to my reputation, where am I searching for somebody to say this one little word? In the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are given a title that is impermeable to failure, a title that doesn't rise and fall on your performance, a title that can't be revoked or renegotiated, in Christ you are named beloved, cherished, valued. And it's this identity, this status then, that enables us to stand and hear this charge, this resurrection charge from Paul. So if our charge begins with our status as beloved, what does it actually call us to? There are two parts to Paul's resurrection charge here. To be anchored in the resurrection and to be propelled by the resurrection. To be anchored in the resurrection and to be propelled by the resurrection. You see, Paul instructs us as his beloved sisters and brothers to be steadfast immovable, right? And the, and the picture, right, that the, the words are trying to paint here is the idea of standing with two feet firmly planted, right? A low center of gravity, unable to shift this way or that to be steadfast immovable, but to be planted, to be anchored in what? Paul calls us to be anchored in the resurrected life of Jesus, And he calls us, he says to us this morning, Christian, don't shift from this hope. Don't shift away from this resurrection foundation, from this truth that Jesus is alive. Because Paul knows how easy it is to shift. He knows how easy it is, especially in the life of the church when things aren't quite going as you anticipated, when people aren't doing what you think they should be doing to shift away and search for this foundation elsewhere? Or just in our day-to-day lives, right? When things aren't going as we anticipated, as we hoped for, how easy is it to shift away? How long have you been praying for that family member to become a believer? How long have you been yearning for this burden or this illness to be lifted from you. The resurrection is our proof that just as Jesus said, nothing is impossible for God. So we started this sermon, right? I mentioned this, this movie, Free Solo, and I said that it changed my life, but I didn't quite say how. Spoiler alert, it's not that I took up free soloing. Uh, my parents are very glad for that fact. Um, but it changed my life because I watched it at a really helpful moment for me. If, if y'all know me well, and some of you do, some of you don't, uh, you know that a big part of my story is depression. Uh, a few years ago, I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder. and But years before that, I knew that this was something going on kind of in my heart and in my mind. I often described it, and still do, as feeling as though there's a pit of apathy, sadness, and anger that like opens up inside of me and and threatens to swallow me whole. And I was having an, an episode a few years ago when, because when you're depressed, it's not easy to get out of bed. You just turn on Netflix. I watched Free Solo and I watched this movie and something clicked, right? I was watching this story of a man who had something that drove his entire life, who yearned with his whole being to do something. And it was, it was in this moment and watching this, right, that I realized that in a way, like Alex, we are all called to summit El Capitan. We are all called to something that in our own strength, should honestly scare the pants off of us. As Christians, we are all called to enter into this life with eyes wide open to brokenness, to death, to despair around us, and yet enter in with a hope, with a peace that surpasses all understanding. We are called as believers to be long-suffering, to turn the other cheek, to devote our entire lives to making the good news of Jesus known. And this, in our own strength, is frightening. It's frightening because we stand the risk of being ridiculed. We stand the risk of being ostracized. We stand the risk of being dismissed. But this idea, right, that we learn here of to be steadfast and immovable in the resurrection reminds us that even though we are all called, in a sense, like Alex, to do something that scares us, There's one main difference. Unlike Alex, we don't climb without a rope, right? The good news of the resurrection, this idea of to be steadfast and immovable is the reminder that already we are anchored. We are anchored into the finished work of Jesus that tells us that no matter what comes, the wind and waves may shake us. We know the one whose voice calms the storm. We can be anchored in this resurrection hope. We can be steadfast and immovable and out of that be propelled into our work in this world, right? The resurrection of Jesus gives us the stamina, the endurance, the ability, the the security to stand firm, to lift your drooping hands, make straight your wobbly knees and stand, looking to Jesus. And so Paul goes on from here, not only to say to be, to be immovable, but oddly enough, he says then, right, in the next very breath, got to move on, right? Be steadfast, immovable, and then what? Always abounding in your work for the Lord. In other words, we are to be propelled out of this security into the work of the church into the work of Jesus in this world. And it's the same principle right Right here where it says always be abounding in your work for the Lord. It's the same principle that Paul actually writes about earlier in 1 Corinthians when he says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The resurrection, the reality of it in the past and the settled promise of it in the future empowers us as believers to serve the risen Jesus right now, right here. Paul says elsewhere, right, that he is certain that he who began a good work in you will certainly bring it to completion. And it stands to reason then that he who began a good work through you will certainly also bring it to completion. He doesn't leave us alone in this work that he calls us to. And this is exactly what transforms our life here in the church, in this church. You see, Sunday mornings are not merely an opportunity to kind of reflect on the past and remember things that make us feel a little bit better. Sunday mornings are an opportunity, are the means by which God empowers us to live for him in this world, to serve him for his glory and the good of our neighbor, And the reason why is because our life in this church is actually meant to reflect the reality of the resurrection. That's what we do here Sunday after Sunday and throughout the week. We reflect the reality of this resurrection. It's not empty time, right? In our worship, God reorients our hearts, re secures us to the good news of the gospel. We rehearse together this story. The story of the gospel. We praise God for who He is. We confess what we've done. We hear the good news of what He accomplished through Christ. And it's helpful then to think about okay, how does this work actually play out in the church? You know, when Paul says to always be abounding in your work for the Lord, he has in mind what we do here Sunday after Sunday. Did you know that when we sing songs of praise, we are actually doing the work of the Lord? This work is valuable because as you sing out what is true about God, you just might be standing next to somebody who, for whatever reason that morning, doesn't have it within themselves to sing. And you declare for them and over them that what we are looking toward actually is true you know that when we, you are working for the Lord, when we confess our sins out loud, you are boldly proclaiming that this sin, this weight, which might cling so closely, ultimately has no hold on you because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. When you serve in the nursery or down in Sunday school on a Sunday morning, you are doing the work of the Lord because you are making visible You are making visible the hospitality that each of us received from Jesus. You are making visible his declaration that the little children are to come unto him. You make known to the least of these, the loudest of these, even the stinkiest of these, that the gospel is for them. When we pray as a congregation, when you bow your head as Brad led us through and other elders throughout our sites, right? We are declaring, we are once again bringing forward the needs of the chronically ill, the desperately lost, those without hope, trusting that the one to whom we pray hears us and does something about it. Our work in the church is not in vain, it's what God calls us to, it's not empty time. And more than that, right? The work in our church actually propels us outward, outside of these doors, because God's work isn't just confined to the four walls in the sanctuary or in the fellowship hall. God's work is for Sunday through Sunday. It's why Paul writes in his next letter to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians that we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. This is what gives us the motivation to raise our kids in the Lord or to disciple kids through Sunday school or D groups. This is what gives us the motivation to love our roommates when all we want to do is roll our eyes and walk away. This is what gives us the motivation to engage with our work, not out of greed or a desire for power, but for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. This alone is what sends us up and out to do the work that God has called us to. And we've seen, right, we've seen that foundation of what we stand on. We've seen what it pushes us toward. But I wonder if you're like me, whether there's anything kind of still itching at the back of your head, right? Joe, this is all good. This is inspiring, even if I can be so bold. But still, right, there's, there's an itch. This is all well and good for our Sunday songs, but what about our Monday morning realities? After all, it doesn't take much time for us, not necessarily to shift from our resurrection foundation, but to feel as if that foundation was snatched out from under us right, maybe it is uh, mental illness, right, depression, anxiety, maybe it's what's going on in your family, maybe it's the news that you see week after week. When our foundation is snatched away, when we lack the energy to take another step, that's when that overwhelming sense of, of futility, of meaninglessness sets in, right, of what is this all for? This sense of futility, of wondering whether there's a point to all of this, it's real. And it's actually nothing new. It's one of the main themes of one of uh, the books of scripture that does um, the most business with the reality of life, right? In the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes, which literally starts by declaring meaningless, everything is meaningless. This sense of futility, though, has in many ways, I think, grown even closer kind of in our modern era, because as we push God further and further away, the reality of death gets closer and closer. And we know that death ultimately, right, is the ground of all feelings of hopelessness and meaninglessness. Uh, Albert Camus, who is a a 20th century French philosopher, is actually famous for taking these ideas to their fullest conclusion. He says that life not only, it's not just meaningless, it's actually fundamentally absurd, right? It's just kind of one big practical joke that the universe is playing on us. He says, right, and this is his quote, that this absurdity in life is born of the confrontation between the human need and the unreasonable silence of the world, We don't want to feel like life is meaningless. We search for meaning. We search for a reason to get up in the morning. But Camus says at the end of the day, we're all hurtling towards death. And that death is an inevitable, final, and all-encompassing reality. We often feel most hopeless, most frustrated, most like all of this work is in vain when death intrudes on life rudely and severely. but it's precisely into this idea, this sense that Paul speaks the miraculous words that close out our verse. We can do all these things. Why? Knowing that in the Lord, your labor, our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Your labor is not in vain. And Paul, right off the bat, sets up a sort of implicit dichotomy here, right? Your labor is either in the Lord or it's not. How do you know which is which? How do you know whether your labor is or is not? And it's actually pretty simple. It goes right back to the very beginning of chapter 15, where Paul very clearly states the good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose again on the third day. If you believe in this, with even just a mustard seed of faith the promise of god to you is that you will have everlasting life and your labor is not in vain but it's not just christ's death that we have to concern ourselves with that his death takes away our sin but it's with his resurrection because the resurrection tells us that this life, all of this creation is actually heading somewhere. There's a goal, an end, a telos. And what is this goal? Well, again, it's back in First Corinthians 15. Paul says in verse 24 that the end will come. When Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. The resurrection assures us that contra Camus, death is not an inevitable, final, all-encompassing reality. Death is not the end. It inevitably gives way to life for all who are in Christ, for all who profess that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. Death is like the twinkling of an eye. It's like a mere nap. In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. We see here and through the wider witness of Scripture, right, that our work right now for Jesus is not merely putting a fresh coat of paint on a house that's going to be torn down. Right? It's not restoring a statue that is eventually going to be crushed into dust. It's not rolling a boulder up a hill only for it to roll right back down and have to start all over again. As strange as it may seem, our work for Jesus here and now is not in vain because it is taken up as part of God's story. And one day, someday, it will in due time be part of God's world that he promises to bring. The resurrection was the beginning of the recreation of this whole world. Our hope is not that one day we'll fly away from here and live some disembodied existence. Our hope is that God will bring beauty down, restore this broken world, and make it all that it was meant to be. And all of this is why that for Paul, right, a futile Christian life, a a meaningless, a pointless Christian life, it's an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. Those words just don't fit together. We may subjectively experience feelings of hopelessness or meaninglessness, but the objective truth of the resurrection is that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Again, think back to me as we close uh, to Alex Honnold, our free soloer. He dedicated everything that he had, right, to climbing this rock face, not caring really whether he lived or he died. And as I said, this movie had a fundamental impact on me, and and a big reason was that was because I realized Alex was actually living out something that didn't belong to his worldview. He was living out a resurrection principle. Right In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul says that your life, your work, your waking, your sleeping, your eating, your drinking, it has meaning. Your life is determined by something outside of itself. The resurrection of Jesus is informative and determinative for all of us, for all that we do. You can abound in the work of the Lord because the resurrection is real. Alex succeeded in his attempts, right? He free soloed this rock face nearly 3,000 feet in less than four hours, which is absurd. He really did do it. It really did happen. It was a real historical event, but that accomplishment made no guarantee on the future. The resurrection of Jesus is not like that. It's a real historical event that makes an imperishable guarantee on the future. And that anchors us into our present reality to abound in our work for the Lord, knowing that what He calls us to, this work, it's not in vain. Friends, Jesus really is alive. It changes everything about how we live and how we move. So let's get to work. Let's pray. Our Father, What incredible news this is that you've given us a record of through your word. And it's through your word that your spirit speaks to us this morning, comforting us, convicting us, encouraging us. Lord, would you give us the boldness to live knowing that the resurrection is true, to take comfort and security in the fact that you are making all things new? and the miraculous reality that you invite people like us, broken and feeble as we might be, into your work in this world. May we do all things for your glory and the good of our neighbors. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.